This episode is dedicated in loving memory of John Francis Hardiman, a talented musician, scholar of Latin and history, a lover of literature who had many Jane Austen works in his personal collection, a man who positively influenced thousands of students over his 35-plus year teaching career and greatly enjoyed Ballarat National Theatre's 2018 stage production of Pride and Prejudice. John listened to his daughter's portrayal of Mrs Bennet in episode one with childlike delight, and he will be greatly missed by many. Vale. Chapter 41 The first week of their return was soon gone. The second began. It was the last of the regiment's stay in Meryton, and all the young ladies in the neighbourhood were drooping apace. The dejection was almost universal. The elder Miss Bennets alone were still able to eat, drink and sleep, and pursue the usual course of their employments. Very frequently were they reproached for this insensibility by Kitty and Lydia, whose own misery was extreme, and who could not comprehend such hard-heartedness in any of the family. Good heavens! What is to become of us? And what are we to do? How can you be smiling so, Lizzie? Their affectionate mother shared all their grief. She remembered what she had endured herself on a similar occasion five and twenty years ago. I am sure I cried for two days together when Colonel Miller's regiment went away. I thought I should have broken my heart. And I'm sure I shall break mine. If one could but go to Brighton. Oh, yes. If one could but go to Brighton. But Papa is so disagreeable. A little sea bathing would set me up forever. And my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great deal of good, added Kitty. Such were the kind of lamentations resounding perpetually through the Longbourn house. Elizabeth tried to be diverted by them, but all sense of pleasure was lost in shame. She felt anew the justice of Mr Darcy's objections, and never had she been so disposed to pardon his interference in the views of his friend. But the gloom of Lydia's prospect was shortly cleared away, for she received an invitation from Mrs Forster, the wife of the colonel of the regiment, to accompany her to Brighton. This invaluable friend was a very young woman and very lately married. A resemblance in good humour and good spirits had recommended her and Lydia to each other, and out of their three months' acquaintance they had been intimate too. The rapture of Lydia on this occasion, for her adoration of Mrs Forster, the delight of Mrs Bennet and the mortification of Kitty, was scarcely to be described. Wholly inattentive to her sister's feelings, Lydia flew about the house in restless ecstasy. <laughs> Do you think that the dearest wish of my heart has been answered? La! But Brighton holds such possibility of delight and joy. Oh, congratulate me, sisters! For I am the luckiest of all. Not that I have any desire to detract from your joy, sister. But I confess Brighton holds no very great appeal to me. Mary assured Lydia with thoughtful sincerity. I should think that the comforts of home hold far greater charm. Lydia's laughter increased, and she continued talking with more violence than ever. 
whilst the luckless Kitty continued in the parlour, repining at her fate in terms as unreasonable as her accent was peevish. I cannot see why Mrs Forster should not ask me as well as Lydia, though I'm not her particular friend. I have just as much right to be asked as she has, and more too, for I am two years older. In vain did Elizabeth attempt to make her reasonable, and Jane to make her resigned. As for Elizabeth herself, this invitation was so far from exciting in her the same feelings as in her mother and Lydia that she considered it as the death warrant of all possibility of common sense for the latter. And detestable, as such a step must make her, were it known, she could not help secretly advising her father not to let Lydia go. She represented to him all the improprieties of Lydia's general behaviour, the little advantage she could derive from the friendship of such a woman as Mrs Forster, and the probability of her being yet more imprudent with such a companion at Brighton, where the temptations must be greater than at home. He heard her attentively, and then said, Lydia will never be easy until she has exposed herself in some public place or other. And we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as under the present circumstances. If you were aware, Papa, of the very great disadvantage to us all, which must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded and imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in the affair. Already arisen? Ah, what, has she frightened away some of your lovers? Poor little Lizzie. But do not be cast down. Such squeamish youths as cannot bear to be connected with a little absurdity are not worth a regret. Come, let me see the list of pitiful fellows who have been kept aloof by Lydia's folly. Indeed, you are mistaken, Papa. I have no such injuries to resent. It is not of particular, but of general evils which I am now complaining. Our importance, our respectability in the world must be affected by the wild volatility, the assurance and the disdain of all restraint which mark Lydia's character. Excuse me, for I must speak plainly. If you, my dear father will not take the trouble of checking her exuberant spirits and of teaching her that her present pursuits are not to be the business of her life, she will soon be beyond the reach of amendment. Her character will be fixed, and she will, at sixteen, be the most determined flirt that ever made herself or her family ridiculous. A flirt, too, in the worst and meanest degree of flirtation, without any attraction beyond youth and a tolerable person, and from the ignorance and emptiness of her mind, wholly unable to ward off any portion of that universal contempt which her rage for admiration will excite. In this danger, Kitty also is comprehended. She will follow wherever Lydia leads. Vain, ignorant, idle and completely uncontrolled. Oh, my dear father, can you suppose it possible that they will not be censured and despised wherever they are known, and that their sisters will not be often involved in their disgrace? Mr Bennet saw that her whole heart was in the subject, and affectionately taking her hand, said in reply, Do not make yourself uneasy, my love. Wherever you and Jane are known, you must be respected and valued, and it will not appear to less advantage for having a couple of 
or I may say three, very silly sisters. We shall have no peace at Longbourn if Lydia does not go to Brighton. Let her go then. Colonel Forster is a sensible man, and will keep her out of any real mischief, and she is luckily too poor to be an object of prey to anybody. At Brighton she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here. The officers will find women better worth their notice. Let us hope, therefore, that her being there may teach her her own insignificance. At any rate, she cannot grow many degrees worse without authorising us to lock her up for the rest of her life. With this answer, Elizabeth was forced to be content, but her own opinion continued the same, and she left him disappointed and sorry. It was not in her nature, however, to increase her vexations by dwelling on them. She was confident of having performed her duty, and to fret over unavoidable evils or augment them by anxiety was no part of her disposition. Had Lydia and her mother known the substance of her conference with her father, their indignation would hardly have found expression in their united volubility. In Lydia's imagination, a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness— she saw, with the creative eye of fancy, the streets of that gay bathing place, covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention, to tens and to scores of them at present unknown. She saw all the glories of the camp, its tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and the gay, and dazzling with scarlet. And, to complete the view, she saw herself seated beneath a tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. Had she known her sister sought to tear her from such prospects and such realities as these, what would have been her sensations? They could have been understood only by her mother, who might have felt nearly the same. Lydia's going to Brighton was all that consoled her for her melancholy conviction of her husband's never intending to go there himself but they were entirely ignorant of what had passed, and their raptures continued with little intermission to the very day of Lydia's leaving home. Elizabeth was now to see Mr Wickham for the last time. Having been frequently in company with him since her return, agitation was pretty well over, the agitations of formal partiality entirely so. She had even learned to detect in the very gentleness which had first delighted her, an affection and a sameness to disgust and weary. In his present behaviour to herself, moreover, she had a fresh source of displeasure, for the inclination he soon testified of renewing those intentions which had marked the early part of their acquaintance could only serve, after what had since passed, to provoke her. She lost all concern for him in finding herself thus selected as the object of such idle and frivolous gallantry and while she steadily repressed it, could not but feel the reproof contained in his believing that however long and for whatever cause his attentions had been withdrawn, her vanity would be gratified and her preference secured at any time by their renewal. On the very last day of the regiment's remaining at Meryton, he dined with other of the officers at Longbourn, and so little was Elizabeth disposed to part from him in good humour that on his making some inquiry as to the manner in which her time had passed at Hunsford, she mentioned Colonel Fitzwilliams and Mr Darcy's having both spent three weeks at Rosings, and asked him if he was acquainted with the former. He looked surprised, displeased, alarmed. 
but, with a moment's recollection and a returning smile, replied that he had formerly seen him often, and after observing that he was a very gentlemanlike man, asked her how she had liked him. Her answer was warmly in his favour. With an air of indifference, he soon afterwards added, How long did you say he was at Rosings? Nearly three weeks. And you saw him frequently? Yes, almost every day. His manners are very different from his cousin's. Yes, very different. But I think Mr Darcy improves upon acquaintance. Indeed! cried Mr Wickham with a look which did not escape her. (laughs) And pray, may I ask... But checking himself, he added in a gayer tone... Is it in address he improves? Has he deigned to add aught of civility to his ordinary style? For I dare not hope that he is improved in essentials. Uh, no. In essentials, I believe, he is very much what he ever was. While she spoke, Wickham looked as if scarcely knowing whether to rejoice over her words or to distrust their meaning. There was something in her countenance which made him listen with an apprehensive and anxious attention, while she added, When I say that he improved on acquaintance, I did not mean that his mind or his manners were in a state of improvement, but that from knowing him better, his disposition was better understood. Wickham's alarm now appeared in a heightened complexion and agitated look. For a few minutes he was silent, till, shaking off his embarrassment, he turned to her again and said in the gentlest of accents, You who so well know my feeling towards Mr. Darcy will readily comprehend how sincerely I must rejoice that he is wise enough to assume even the appearance of what is right. His pride in that direction may be of service, if not to himself, to many others, for it must only deter him from such foul misconduct as I have suffered by. I only fear that the sort of cautiousness to which you, I imagine, have been alluding, is merely adopted on his visits to his aunt, of whose good opinion and judgment he stands in awe. His fear of her has always operated, I know, and a good deal is to be imputed to his wish of forwarding the match with Mr. Berg, which I am certain he has very much at heart. Elizabeth could not repress a smile at this, but she answered only by a slight inclination of her head. She saw that he wanted to engage her on the old subject of his grievances, and she was in no humour to indulge him. The rest of the evening passed with the appearance, on his side, of usual cheerfulness, but with no further attempt to distinguish Elizabeth, and they parted at last with mutual civility and the possibility of a mutual desire of never meeting again. When the party broke up, Lydia returned with Mrs Forster to Meryton, from whence they were to set out early the next morning. The separation between her and her family was rather noisy than pathetic. Kitty was the only one who shed tears, but she did weep from vexation and envy. Mrs Bennet was diffuse in her good wishes for the felicity of her daughter, and impressive in her injunctions that she should not miss the opportunity of enjoying herself as much as possible— advice which there was every reason to believe would be well attended to, 
and in the clamorous happiness of Lydia herself in bidding farewell, the more gentle adieus of her sisters were uttered without being heard. Chapter 42 Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she could not have formed a very pleasing opinion of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. Her father, captivated by youth and beauty, and that appearance of good humour which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman whose weak understanding and illiberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. Respect, esteem and confidence had vanished forever, and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. But Mr. Bennet was not of a disposition to seek comfort for the disappointment which his own imprudence had brought on in any of those pleasures which too often console the unfortunate for the folly of their vice. He was fond of the country and of books, and from these tastes had arisen his principal enjoyments. To his wife he was very little otherwise indebted than as to her ignorance and folly had contributed to his amusement. This is not the sort of happiness which a man would in general wish to owe to his wife, but where other powers of entertainment are wanting, the true philosopher will derive benefit from such as are given. Elizabeth, however, had never been blind to the impropriety of her father's behaviour as a husband. She had always seen it with pain, but, respecting his abilities and grateful for his affectionate treatment of herself, she endeavoured to forget what she could not overlook and to banish from her thoughts that continual breach of conjugal obligation and decorum which, in exposing his wife to the contempt of her own children, was so highly reprehensible. But she had never felt so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage, nor ever been so fully aware of the evils arising from so ill-judged a direction of talents, talents which, used rightly, might at least have preserved the respectability of his daughters, if incapable of enlarging the mind of his wife. When Elizabeth had rejoiced over Wickham's departure, she found little other cause for satisfaction in the loss of the regiment. Their parties abroad were less varied than before, and at home she had a mother and a sister whose constant repinings at the dullness of everything around them threw a real gloom over their domestic circle. And, though Kitty might in time regain her natural degree of sense, since the disturbers of her brain were removed, her other sister, from whose disposition greater evil might still be apprehended, was likely to be hardened in all her folly and assurance by a situation of such double danger as a watering place and a camp. Upon the whole, therefore, she found what had been sometimes been found before, that an event to which she had been looking with impatient desire did not, in taking place, bring all the satisfaction she had promised herself. It was consequently necessary to name some other period for the commencement of actual felicity, to have some other point on which her wishes and hopes might be fixed, and by again enjoying the pleasure of anticipation, console herself for the present and prepare for another disappointment. Her tour to the lakes was now the object of her happiest thoughts. It was her best consolation for all the uncomfortable hours which the discontentedness of her mother and Kitty made inevitable, and, could she have included Jane in the scheme, every part of it would have been perfect. But it is fortunate that I have something to wish for, thought she. Were the whole arrangement complete, 
my disappointment would be certain. But here, by carrying with me one ceaseless source of regret in my sister's absence, I may reasonably hope to have all my expectations of pleasure realised. A scheme of which every part promises delight can never be successful, and general disappointment is only warded off by the deference of some little peculiar vexation. When Lydia went away, she promised to write very often and very minutely to her mother and Kitty, but her letters were always long expected and always very short. Those to her mother contained little else than that they had just returned from the library, where such and such officers had attended them, and where she had seen such beautiful ornaments as to make her quite wild, that she had a new gown or a new parasol, which she would have described more fully, but was obliged to leave off in a violent hurry, as Mrs Forster called her, and they were going off to the camp. And from her correspondence with her sister, there was still less to be learned, for her letters to Kitty, though rather longer, were too full of lines under the words to be made public. After the first fortnight, or three weeks, of her absence, health, good humour and cheerfulness began to reappear at Longbourn. Everything wore a happier aspect. The families who had been in town for the winter came back again, and the summer finery and summer engagements arose. Mrs Bennet was restored to her usual querulous serenity, and, by the middle of June, Kitty was so much recovered as to be able to enter Meryton without tears, an event of such happy promise as to make Elizabeth hope that by the following Christmas she might be so tolerably reasonable as to not mention an officer above once a day, unless, by some cruel and malicious arrangement at the war office, another regiment should be quartered in Meryton. The time fixed for the beginning of their northern tour was now fast approaching, and a fortnight only was wanting of it, when a letter arrived from Mrs Gardiner, which at once delayed its commencement and curtailed its extent. Mr Gardiner would be prevented by business from setting out till a fortnight later in July, and must be in London again within a month, and, as that left too short a period for them to go so far and see so much as they had proposed, or at least to see it with the leisure and comfort they had built on, they were obliged to give up the lakes and substitute a more contracted tour, and, according to the present plan, were to go no farther northwards than Derbyshire. In that county there was enough to be seen to occupy the chief of their three weeks, and to Mrs Gardiner it had a particularly strong attraction. The town where she had formerly passed some years of her life, and where they were now to spend a few days, was probably as great an object of her curiosity as all the celebrated beauties of Matlock, Chatsworth, Dovedale, or the Peak. Elizabeth was excessively disappointed. She had set her heart on seeing the lakes, and still thought that there might have been time enough. But it was her business to be satisfied, and certainly her temper to be happy, and all was soon right again. With the mention of Derbyshire, there were many ideas connected. It was impossible for her to see the word without thinking of Pemberley and its owner. But surely, I may enter his county without impunity. And Robert, of a few petrified spars, without his perceiving me. The period of expectation was now doubled. Four weeks were to pass away before her uncle and aunt's arrival. But they did pass away, and Mr and Mrs Gardiner, with their four children, did at length appear at Longbourn. The children, two girls of six and eight years old, and two younger boys, 
were to be left under the particular care of their cousin Jane, who was the general favourite, and whose steady sense and sweetness of temper exactly adapted her for attending them in every way, teaching them, playing with them, and loving them. Cousin Jane! Cousin Jane! How happy are we to see you! You are to care for us while Mama and Papa take their tour with Cousin Elizabeth. What fun we shall have! The gardeners stayed only one night at Longbourn and set off the next morning with Elizabeth in pursuit of novelty and amusement. One enjoyment was certain, that of suitableness of companions, a suitableness which comprehended health and temper to bear inconveniences, cheerfulness to enhance every pleasure, and affection and intelligence which might supply it among themselves if there were disappointments abroad. It is not the object of this work to give a description of Derbyshire, nor of any of the remarkable places through which their route thither lay. Oxford, Blenheim, Warwick, Kenilworth, Birmingham, etc., are sufficiently known. A small part of Derbyshire is all the present concern. To the little town of Lampton, the scene of Mrs Gardiner's former residence, and where she had lately learned some acquaintance still remained, they bent their steps, after having seen all the principal wonders of the country, and, within five miles of Lampton, Elizabeth found from her aunt that Pemberley was situated. It was not in their direct road, nor more than a mile or two out of it. In talking over their route the evening before, Mrs Gardiner expressed an inclination to see the place again. Mr Gardiner declared his willingness, and Elizabeth was applied to for her approbation. My love, should not you like to see a place of which you have heard so much? A place, too, with which so many of your acquaintances are connected. Wickham passed all his youth there, you know. Elizabeth was distressed. She felt that she had no business at Pemberley and was obliged to assume a disinclination for seeing it. She must own that she was tired of seeing great houses. After going over so many, she really had no pleasure in fine carpets or satin curtains. Mrs Gardiner abused her stupidity. If it were merely a fine house, richly furnished, I should not care about it myself. But the grounds are delightful. They have some of the finest woods in the country. Elizabeth said no more, but her mind could not acquiesce. The possibility of meeting Mr Darcy while viewing the place instantly occurred. It would be dreadful. She blushed at the very idea and thought it would be better to speak openly to her aunt rather than to run such a risk. But against this there were objections and she finally resolved that it could be the last resource if her private inquiries to the absence of the family were unfavourably answered. Accordingly, when she retired at night, she asked the chambermaid whether Pemberley was not a very fine place, what was the name of its proprietor, and, with no little alarm, whether the family were down for the summer. A most welcome negative followed the last question, and her alarms now being removed, she was at leisure to feel a great deal of curiosity to see the house herself, and, when the subject was revived the next morning and she was again applied to, could readily answer, and with a proper air of indifference, that she had really not any dislike to the scheme. To Pemberley, therefore, they were to go. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. A quick hello and thank you to some of our fans in the United States. Thank you, Marley, for your delightful email and also hello to Mariah and Coco. Coco is our youngest fan. We adore you, Coco. 
This production is directed by Liana Skews, it is narrated by Olivia French, and it is prepared for production by Elizabeth Bradford, Marley Vanderbale, Olivia French, and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Daisy Kate Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Amelia Pawsey as Kitty Bennett, Kiralee McCalla as Mary Bennett, Pippa Assum as the Gardener Child, and Kai as Mrs. Gardener, and Elliot Gale as Mr. Wickham. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathaurong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathaurong, Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung, Wurrungjeri and Jarjawurrung peoples. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to... Hello, Pussycat. Our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. We started this little podcast as a way of putting some good things into the world and... The other day, when I was out and about walking, feeling the pressures of 2020, I spotted a sign that was encouraging passers-by to find the 11 fairy houses that had been hidden high and low in the beautiful big trees along the street. And seeing the good that someone else was putting into the world for strangers during such dark times was exactly what my heart needed. And on that day, I hoped, as I hope every day, that this story, dear listener, is the little bit of good that you need to hear. So sending love from us to you.